Today, we have several special things going on, um, actually special people that we want to celebrate here and pray for at the end of this sermon. And as we do so, I, I, I was a little nervous when I saw where my sermon passage was at, realizing that it was going to be the day we're going to pray for babies. And I was really nervous and almost changed it, but then I got to reading the passage and I thought it just fits perfect. I think what it does for us is it outlines a prayer that I want us to pray, not just for our little ones as parents and family around but I think it paints a beautiful picture about what it means to, to, to pray for ourselves and how we should be thinking and, and growing our lives. And it all has to do with this, with this picture of light and dark. Uh, when we remodeled this room, uh, we lost all outside light except for those two windows back there. So if you walk into this room in the middle of the week and, and no one's been in here, this room is pitch black. And so uh, if they were to reshoot the movie Indiana Jones and he has to walk through those dangerous trials at the end of the movie, they would then come here and make you walk through the dark in this room through the week and see if you can survive that because it's dangerous. And so someone wisely, Loretta, went and got some night lights this week and plugged them in. So now if you come in here, there's at least a little bit of light so you can see when you fall instead of falling in the dark, which is a more scary thing. Um, so dark is a, a difficult place to be. Um, there was uh, a few weeks ago, um, my, I have a 13-year-old son, Nathan, and we were, uh, it was a dark and it was a stormy night, and we were tucking Nathan, and Bobby Joe was tucking Nathan into bed, um, and she was about to turn off the lights when he looked up and said with a little tremor in his voice, Mommy, will you sleep with me tonight? And, and Bobby Joe smiled at him reassuringly and said, uh, just look, I'll give me a hug here, Nathan, but I, I can't, dear. I have to sleep in Daddy's room. And there was a long silence that was finally broken with his last little shaky voice when he said, that big sissy. Um, okay. I'm kidding. Actually, that didn't, Nathan didn't do that. But if you know Nathan, come back second service because I'm going to tell that joke on him again and he won't find it funny at all, but I find that hilarious that he would do that. But he didn't do that. But you can picture a small child doing that, right? Because when you're scared, when there is dark, when there are storms, you want the assurance of of protection and safety, and you want to be well. And this passage today, I think, illustrates that. The desire for us to find peace, to find security, to find safety in our life is one that no matter whether you are the tiniest of infants or you are the oldest of adults, that is real to you. You know that feeling. And so the passage that we're going to look at today is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. And as we do so, what I hope that you will do is there are two phrases. There's one phrase in particular that is my prayer for our baby dedication part today. But it's also my prayer for all of us that, again, whether we are small or whether we are much uh, farther along the time chain, timeline, uh, that uh, it's our prayer that we would be this. And it's simply that we would be children of the light. And so I want to read this passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you were with us last week, we finished chapter 4 where Paul um, was addressing a question that, that people had asked. And so they asked, okay, we've heard, that Paul, that you teach that Jesus is coming back. And since you left us, there are these people in the church who have died. And so what happens to those people? Do they miss out on Jesus' return? Do they miss out on the resurrection because they weren't alive when Jesus comes back? And so we went through last week and... 
it answered the question of what happens to us. And we talked about resurrection and reunion and, and a lot of beautiful things that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 answers for us. And so the conversation continues, but the focus changes in chapter 5. No longer is Paul answering the question of what happens to those who are dead in Christ before Christ returns. But now the question turns to, well, when's this going to happen? Uh, when's Jesus coming back? And that's a question that has been pondered and written about and debated for, for centuries. And yet Paul answers the question with not really the answer that they are looking for, but the answer that they need. And so listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and following. He says this. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope as a salvation, of salvation as, a, as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead or alive in Christ, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. And so as you walk through this passage, I just want to review it and walk back through it and highlight some things that, that are going to become our prayer for this day. Uh, there are two groups, if you read through this passage, really two groups that Paul is addressing that, that all of us fall into one of these two camps. The two groups in this text are, are the children of the light and the children of the night. And the phrasing children of the night isn't written in the text, but it's implied. It's the opposite side of what Paul is talking about when he goes through and highlights the, the children of the light, the children of the day, the, the awake and sober, uh, the, the, those who belong to the day. That group of people that he keeps talking about is simply the group of people that Paul is writing to, people who have come to know who Jesus is, people who have believed in Christ and trusted him with their life and surrendered to him. And they are now living their life to try to please Christ, waiting for his return. But then there's the other group who have not come to know Christ yet, who have not surrendered to him and are not looking forward uh, either passively or they're not looking actively for his return. And so those two groups of people uh, are what this passage is really about. And, and we just have to begin to ask ourselves the question, which one am I in? Which one am I pursuing? Which one am I trying to find be found in? And so to each one of these groups, there's a word that is given in this passage to the one, there's given a word of warning. Uh, to one group, there's a, a word of warning that is given, uh, and that's the group that would be, we would call the children of the night. Now, there's a warning that is given where in verse 3 again, he says, where there's peace and security, then destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains come on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. 
So there's a word of warning in this passage that, that ought to be heeded. If you don't follow Christ, the day will come. This whole day that's being talked of, is the day of the Lord is really a phrase. If you go all the way through the Bible, it, it, it always tends to be really about two things. It's about uh, punishment, if that's the right word, or justice against God's enemies. And it's really about deliverance or rescue of God's people. And so anytime you see this, sometimes it's talking about specific things and specific dates. But, but when you read it in this passage, it's talking about the ultimate end game, if I can use that, if I have a marvel pun for those of you who are interested in those things. Um, that end game that God's going to play in Jesus that we read about last week, where he returns, there's trumpets, there's this great reunion, there's resurrection, there's this beautiful thing where Jesus ends all things and sets all things right. And so when you read that phrase, the day of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. And so that day will come. And for some, there's a warning to, 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 to really take to heart because that day, he says, will not come as a welcome guest. How does a thief come? If you've ever had your, your car or your house or something that you value broken into and someone steals something, they don't normally uh, sound a horn and, and announce they're coming. They come in a surprising kind of way. They come in a way where you don't expect it. And it scares you, and it unsettles you. It's something that you're not ready for. And so he warns them about that. A couple weeks ago, um, over the Christmas break and all of the snow and things we had, one of our favorite pastimes is to go back and watch all of the Rocky movies um, that my kids seem to love. I don't know why, but they do. They love them, and so we watch all the Rocky movies. And, and a couple weeks ago, there was a real boxing match that took place that someone had posted, and I was watching. If you ever watch Rocky, you know there's always one fighter who seems to be more arrogant than the other, and that's the one who usually loses, right? It's the arrogant guy. And there was a real fight a couple weeks ago, and this guy was clearly winning this fight and he was dancing around and he was he was doing all kinds of things I won't I don't I won't break out my boxing moves for you today but he was dancing around and he was looking quite as you watch this video you could tell he was completely in in charge of this fight until the end when his opponent with a puffy beaten up face landed one punch on the guy's chin and knocked him out cold and a man who thought oh I've got this wrapped up everything is fine I'm just cruising to the end here is now laying on his back unconscious and that's the picture that this passage paints. It's a picture of people who think, you know what, everything's fine. There's peace, there's safety, everything's fine. But then Jesus comes back and things are not fine anymore because they weren't ready. They weren't ready for that day. And so there's a word of warning that is given to us, a, a word of warning to say, hey, if you haven't settled this whole Jesus thing in your life yet, it's time to do that because we don't know when the day of the Lord will come. Uh, that's not really, Paul says, hey, it's going to come like a thief. There's no announced time. There's no thing that you can say, hey, I know it's tomorrow because of the, there's an eclipse today. That, that's not the way this works. He says he'll come like a thief in the night, unannounced, unexpected for many. And so to many, that's a word of warning. But he, to the other group, to the children of the light, this isn't a word of warning. This is a word of comfort. It's a word of comfort that, that says, hey, there's not, there's not just people in the world who are going to be terrified by that moment. There's another group of people who are looking for that day, who are praying for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come is their prayer of their heart. I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait till he arrives. I can't wait till he comes and makes right all the wrongs and, and ultimately issues in his kingdom and, and death and dying and all the pain of life is gone. And there's a word of comfort that he gives and so there's this contrast. He says, you're not in darkness, brothers and sisters, verses four and five, that this day should surprise you like a thief. And so it's not a surprise because you're ready for it. 
All right? It's like a, just a welcome home. We don't know for sure when he's coming, but we know he is, and it's good news when he does. And so there's a word of warning, and there's a word of comfort, and it just causes us to stop and think, where, what am I doing to get ready for that day? And, and so there's different words of, of warning and comfort, depending on whether you find yourself in the category of, of a child of the light or a child of the night. But there's a, there's a word that's given, there's at least an idea that I think is, is appropriate for both of them. I think to both of them, there's a word of urgency that's given. Both of these groups ought to have an urgency about them. To those that fall into the category of the, of the night, he said, hey, it's time to, to quit playing games. It's just time to really settle out this whole Jesus thing in your life and, and make a decision one way or the other. Don't keep kicking the can down the road thinking I got plenty of time, everything's fine. Get it ready, get right with him while there's time. But there's also a word of urgency to those who find comfort in Christ's coming. Because his implication in this text is that not that we sit back and do nothing while we wait for him, but that we are busy, that we are active, that we are helping every way that we possibly can to prepare not only ourselves, but the world around us for his coming. And so he warns us and encourages us in verses six and seven, do not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Um, awake and sober. What does that look like? What does it look like in a real practical way for us to really pursue awakeness and soberness, okay? Um, now, if you're sitting by someone who's sleeping, unless it's a baby, you have permission now to elbow them because the preacher just said you need to be awake for this, okay? All right, so uh, you can do that right now. Go ahead. Anybody you need to elbow? Okay, you all right. Okay, that's fine. Everybody's awake now. But if they're, if they're not sober, we'll have to deal with that later, okay? I don't know how we'll do with that now, but we get a cold bucket of water like they do in the Westerns or something like that. But what does it mean to be awake and sober? What does that look like in, in our life? Well, there are two things that I, I heard. These are not original with me, but I love the way they, they kind of summarize these. What does it wake, mean to look, what does it look like, excuse me, to be awake and sober? I think the first one is this, that you simply live aware that you live aware of what's going on. There's awareness, there is alertness, there is a, a lack of numbness, if you would say it the other way. Living in a way that you know Christ is coming, that you have a future destination, that there comes a life and in, in, in a vigilance that comes, that, hey, there's this good day coming, and I'm living for that day as I live out these days. And so again, in verses six and seven, he says, who are asleep, let us, let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, Sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. And so the question we must ask is, what does sleep and drunkenness do to us? Well, it makes us unaware of reality, right? <clears throat> Both of those things kind of separate us from reality that's going on around us. It numbs us to pain. It numbs us to what's going on, to things around us. Um, and it's easy for us to fall into that, whether that's literal or figurative, that maybe we're literally sleeping all the time or literally drunk all the time, or it's metaphorical that, hey, I'm just so focused, I'm so busy, I'm so distracted that from God's perspective, it looks like, man, that guy's just asleep at the wheel. He's not paying any attention to what's really going on here. He's not awake and alert to, to their life's really important realities. 
You've probably heard the story, and I think I've even talked about it before, of the, of the lady named Florence Chadwick, who, who years and years ago made the long 15-hour swim, I believe it was somewhere in California, from one island to the, to the shore of the ocean. And if you remember her story, that the story goes that she, uh, she made her first attempt to make this 15-mile swim to shore, and, and she's doing fine until the last few miles, and this dense fog moves in. And all of a sudden, she can't see what's ahead of her. And so she gets weary because her mind is now, has no, I have no idea how far I'm going. I don't know how long this is going to take. And so she fails in her first attempt because the fog distracted her from what she was trying to do. But someone wrote this in about a blog post about the second time that she went. And the second time she did it, she set out and, and even the same fog came that time, but, but she pressed on and, and she made it successfully to the shore. And they asked her, what was the difference? And she said this. The first time, all I could see was the fog. But the second time, I kept a mental image of that shoreline while I swam. And so she couldn't see it, but she had a mental image of what the shore looked like and said, that's where I'm going. Even though I can't see it now, I know what's there, and I will keep pressing forward until I am there. And the blog post says this, that her comment gives a great image of how heaven should function, of the return of Christ, what that should do in our lives, because it helps us through the fog. We need an, an eternal image, an external image in our mind that says, hey, on my hard days, this is what keeps me going in my faith and my walk. This is what keeps me going. There's this picture at the end that keeps me pushing forward. You're going to face a lot of fogs in life, but how you will be different and how you will handle them successfully is to have this mental image that Paul wants them not to forget about. Don't forget about this great and beautiful day. And so the question we have to ask is just how often do you think of heaven? How often do you think of the return of Christ? And, and in a day where distractions come to us a dime a dozen, they are constant, they are always there. It's hard sometimes. And so you have to ask the question, what am I doing what am I practically doing to remind myself of this reality spiritually? Who am I hanging out with? What person in my life, when I hang out with them, they tend to remind me to think that way. Or what do I need to read? What do I need to be listening to? What do I need to do on a regular basis that helps me again just to, to train my mind to think for that? All right, so the first thing that, that Paul encourages them to do is to live aware, to, to train yourself, to always be looking ahead, to realize I've got a lot of things to do today, but I want to never forget all of those things that are ahead of me. Because the second thing that he says, if you're gonna live this awake and sober life that you not only live aware, but number two, you live clothed in Christ. You live clothed in Christ. And he goes on and uses those, that breastplate analogy, the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of salvation. Those are clothing things, right? If you were soldier things particularly, but they're clothing. And clothing does a couple of things for us. And the first one I think is the most important, that clothing protects our faith. This kind of clothing protects our faith and pads the impact when peace is lost. Um, if you look in verse, go to the next thing. Yeah, that clothing protects our faith, right? And so think of this whole metaphor that Paul is using. Put on this breastplate of faith and love and put on this helmet of hope. And that's gonna make a difference as you go out into your life. And you may do the exact same thing as a person who has no faith in God at all. You may face the same trials. You may have cancer just like they have cancer. You may face death just like they have death in their life. You may lose your job just like they move their job. You may have all kinds of things happen. But what does this clothing do for us? In Christ, it protects us. 
It doesn't, doesn't make it easy. It doesn't take away all the pain, but it does at least pad some of the pain. It does begin to block away some of the things. And what does that look like in, in real life? It changes the way we die, that we don't grieve hopelessly anymore. We grieve because, yes, that, that my, my loved one in Christ, that yes, this is, this is real. Yes, they are separated from the time. But my faith says there is new life to be gained, that this is not an end. This is just a new, a new chapter of life to be lived and gained. And, and, and so we grieve differently. We face stress differently. We face hurts differently. We face disappointments differently because of this hope of salvation that, that we wear, this breastplate of truth and life that, that helps us. And our clothing also does one more thing, that our clothing proclaims something about us. And so it says something, right? If some of you intentionally wear certain clothing that advertises your favorite school or your favorite team or your favorite place to work or your favorite thing, right? Your clothing says something, and, and it would have as well. The clothing that Paul outlines here is, is clothing of a person who's going into, into battle, of a person who's going into face a difficult day, but they're going to do it with the best they have to offer. And so there is a difference that we are called to make. I want to read you a quote here that we're going to finish with. Um, and if you could skip down three slides, Vanessa, I'm going to kind of ch start chucking some sermon material out the door here, okay? Uh, go down about three slides. I want this quote from C.S. Lewis. You may have heard this before, but I want to finish with this. I love what he says, that C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity gives this quote, that this means that a continual looking forward, um, one more forward. One more, there you go, there you go. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world. In other words, what does this whole heaven truth mean for us? As some modern people think, uh, is a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If in fact, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, or the great men who built up the Middle Ages, or the English evangel evangel evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth. But why did they do it? They did it precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Now, what does heaven tell us? Heaven says that there is a place where things are just and fair and right. And the Christian's desire to say, I live in a world where things are not just, things are not right, things are not fair. And it's my desire as a Christian to bring as much of that world into my world so that I'm trying to daily change the world in which I live for the good to bring heaven to earth, to make things on earth as it is in heaven, as we would pray in the Lord's Prayer. And he finishes with this in his quote. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. And so we'll stop there. That gets me enough to say this. Today, we're gonna pray. And a lot of you have little cute ones around us and we appreciate them and we're glad that you were here today. And so out of this passage, here is our prayer that we want to pray over our families, over our young ones, over our own lives. We pray this. As I look at this passage, I pray that we will see the value of life. As my kids grow up, it's easy to get dulled and distracted by, by just, just cruising along and not really seeing the incredible value of life. But not just this life, but this life plus the next life. Because Paul's whole point here is that, that life doesn't end at death. Life doesn't end at Christ's coming. There's life to be lived beyond that for the good or bad. But to see the value 
in life. I got one of those difficult phone calls as a parent on Thursday morning. My daughter was in a car accident, and uh, it was a bad thing, and, and the car is twisted around all up on a bank somewhere. It was, just, it was a bad thing. It's one of those calls you don't like to get as a parent. And so you go, and, and she's in an ambulance getting all checked out. She's fine for the most part. Um, but it's just a scary thing. And again, as a parent, it's easy to say, hey, man, this whole life thing, this is serious stuff. You treasure that. You hold on to that. And so our prayer today is that uh, for our little ones, that they would see that their life is valuable, that it matters, that they are loved, they are cared for by God. A second thing I hope that we're gonna pray for today is that they will see the need for eternal life. That yet as I live this life, that I would see that, that yet this life isn't all there is and that there's a God who, who loves and there's a son who's died for me so that I could have eternal life with he in heaven with him forever that we would pray that our little ones and ourselves, that we would see the need for eternal life. Number three, that we would see the opportunity for godly influence in this life. That our belief that a life to come would be the grounding and the stimulus to say, hey, there's a beautiful world coming. Jesus is gonna make all things right. And I wanna see that kingdom alive and active. And, and I wanna use my life to influence good now. And number four, that we would see the beauty of Christ's life. The last two verses of this passage remind us that when you and I go through life, that there is a Jesus who has died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. And so we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear God's wrath. We don't have to feel, fear the guilt of our sin anymore because there's a beautiful life that was Jesus' life that gave his all for us so that we might have life in him.